0: happy moment. Well, summer is winding down. Swim team pool days and lake days are winding down and podcasting and school supplies and football and cheering are winding up for us. And I am so excited to be back behind this microphone. You know, today I'm going to be sharing with you an interview from someone. When I first heard her voice, I was groggy. I had fallen asleep with my podcasts running all night long, which is not what I had intended, and um, I wasn't even sure which which podcast I was listening to when I woke up. But I could hear a voice, and I immediately woke up, which is unusual for me. I take a long time to wake up, but when I heard her voice with her passion and her heart talking about the radical connectedness of community and that we have to each other, I immediately wanted to buy her book. And so I bought her book, which is called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. She's also written, and I've got it on my to-be-read list, The Very Good Gospel. And so I cannot wait to dig into that. Um, What... I found so intriguing is, so I'm sure you've probably heard the quote, there's no such thing as other people's children. This has always been a quote that has deeply resonated with me, which means too, there's no such thing as anyone else's family. And there's one thing I know in my bones from all of these questions of what is the church and what is the hope of the church and what does the future of the church look like is that we can no longer continue to trip under the things that we have swept under the rug about race in America. We are falling over everything that we have spiritually bypassed. and Lisa Sharon Harper gives the world a beautiful gift. She has this epic and true story of race, religion, history, and identity. And what is most personal is most universal. So dive in with me to this podcast and her book and see the riches that are there in looking deeply without shying away, without dismissing, without bypassing the pain of what race has broken in her family. And you will be so surprised when you sit with that sorrow, you will be set free.
1: Welcome. 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 To celebrate. To celebrate. Holly. Welcome to Celebrate Story. With my mom. My mom. It's my mom. With my mom. With my wife.
0: Julie Wagner. Julie Wagner. Julie Wagner.
1: Julie Wagner.
0: the quote at the bottom of page one uh, or bottom of page 85 um, what will it take to heal the generational wounds of unknowing and separation reunion and story sharing in the very good gospel I examine the Hebrew understanding of very goodness when God looks around at the end of the sixth day of the epic Hebrew poem we now call Genesis 1 and considers it to be very good the Greeks place perfection in inside the thing. Things themselves were thought to be perfect. That was the Greek project, to be perfect. That was not the Hebrew project. The Hebrew word for goodness is tov. The Hebrews understood tov to exist between things, not inside things. Tov was not about the perfection of the thing. It was about the wellness of the relationships between things. Tov is fundamentally relational. When God says tov mod, God is saying that all relationships in creation are radically good. It is our radical interdependent connectedness. We were created for radical connectedness. And that's, I mean, what I also have to say, what a, that's what you're doing in this. You are offering your labor of love, three decades of research on how race broke your family, the truth of it. And if we could enter into it, there is such, there is, there is this gift of being more connected because if we can get over our own holiness obsession and enter into it, there is so much gift and so much beauty. Thank you so much.
2: I mean, I think that, I think for me, the, the main um, piece there is to understand that our, our westernized understanding of Christianity has made Christianity all about being holy. And just like what you were, you said this a little earlier, that, you know, there's this separation that exists between people of European descent, like they kind of hold their cards, they're not very connective. It's, it's really about being perfect in space with each other. That's what, 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 um, what is rewarded, um, And I think that that comes from a theology that places holiness as in perfection uh, above all things. But when you understand that the Hebrews did not think of perfection as living inside the thing, a a thing was not perfect. Instead, perfection or radical goodness existed between things. It was about how we love It was about how we are connected to each other. Then you understand that when God said, this is what I call very good, this is what I call radically good, what God is actually talking about is the relationships between all created things, the relationship between genders, the relationship between us and the rest of creation, the relationship between all of creation and creator and and the systems that govern us so that All works to bless all, just like it does on that first page of the Bible. So, um, when we have an, um, a a theology that centers holiness, then it's all about us. It becomes all about whether or not I get to go to heaven and how perfect and holy am I. And doesn't that, that, that has, has, it has nothing to say. It then has nothing to say to slavery Mm. or, genocide or it's, it has nothing to say to it. It's not even about that or exploitation. So, so somebody can go and do that and still have missionaries, which is exactly the case that Southern Baptists made, right? Southern Baptists became a denomination arguing that point that we can have missionaries and still own slaves because that has nothing to do with the gospel has nothing to do with it. Now there's a problem. There's an issue when you can say that a faith that is born of a people that were serially enslaved, not the enslavers, the enslaved and serially colonized has nothing to say about being enslaved or being colonized. There's a problem when you think that that's what your text has to say. Um, that you you don't think your faith has anything to say. And that is actually the problem of what, what some people have called um uh, um what do they call it? White well, you know, white man's religion, they'll call it um the slaveholder slave religion. There's a whole book actually called slaveholder religion. That's that is slaveholder religion. Mm. But it's not Jesus. It's not brown Jesus who was whose people were serially colonized and serially enslaved. That's not when he says, when he comes out and the very first time he ever gives a speech, he opens up the scripture in Luke 4 and like fingers back to Isaiah 61 and reads from there. And he says, This is why I've come. And why has he come? To free the oppressed. And when I have sat in the pews of white churches, white evangelical churches, they have told me, and not just pews of white churches, I mean, literally on staff with a white missions organization, college missions organization, they told me, oh, no, 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 that means spiritually oppressed. No, no, no. (laughs) No. Who told you that? That's not in the text. The text does not say that. I actually do believe the text. And the text does not say that. Um, you have to make that text do backflips and somersaults in order to make it say what, you, what you're what you saying. What the text says is Jesus said, I have come to free the oppressed, to set them to free the poor, to set the oppressed with good news for the poor, to set the oppressed free. Um, and he said that only 30 years after in this place where he is speaking these words, after The Romans had executed, had had crucified 500 people per day for multiple days for an attempted insurrection. He's saying this on land where the Romans had thrown salt on the land so that the land could not bear fruit, so that the people would be dependent on Rome for every morsel of food. He's saying this in land where Caesar said, I am Papa. Not God. I am Papa. Call me Papa. And when Jesus says, pray like this, say Papa, as in God, not Caesar. You know, your will be done, Papa, in heaven, not Caesar's will be done. You know, give us your daily bread. He's saying, he said he told them to preach like or to pray like that in a context where Caesar used to have um, his centurions and you know, his soldiers go through the streets and throw bread into the street. And that was the daily bread, Ugh. right? So Jesus says, no, 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 no. Pray like this. Give, oh, Papa in heaven, you give us our daily bread, not Caesar. And it's not saying, oh, I don't like taxes. That's not about. It's not about that. Remember, the context is a colonized people and colonization is evil because it does the very it goes against what the scripture tells us god desires on the first page of the bible Ugh. that all humanity who is made in the image of god would be able to exercise dominion on earth in other words exercise stewardship of the world mm. colonization hinders the capacity of people groups
0: to steward their own land, oh, their own bodies, their
2: own families.
0: That is that is so good and so helpful. All this research and love and passion in your faith just come pouring out and that it, which is exactly why I cannot wait. I have twins that are going into 10th grade and it's like oh, wow. I cannot wait for them to dig into this cuz this mm-hmm. the story of one person's family touches us all and I'm so mm. I'm so excited about that I want to hit on another because of course it was hard because of my own holiness obsession that I'm still working through like to read the horrors of how race broke your family the horrors yeah. of rape and dehumanization like I I there yeah. are no words mm-hmm. for the horrors and it is so it is so sobering and so helpful to see that this is this is what we need to look at, because it feels like if I really, just what, what you were talking about, it's like, will the I'm asking, will the real gospel please stand up? And so yeah. unless I ask who we are mm-hmm. and see, take a look, and I'm sure God is opening up stories in a million different ways to see that, but it's like, this is one way to dig deep and to see that.
2: I think that it's also important to understand if we want to fix it, right? If we actually want a world that is well, don't we all want that? I mean, really, don't we all just really long for a world that is well? I mean, I think that when people have answered polls, you know, pollsters will ask people in America, do you long for the 1950s? By and large, the majority of white Americans, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, say yes. I long for the 1950s. Why? Why do they long for that? Because the world felt simpler then. Because you know, the 1950s actually brought the GI Bill, which brought free education and and um, and free homes actually to GIs, and and it built the middle class in America. And you know, you had the not two car garage yet, but at least you had a a, a a garage, and you you had the tricycles on the street and and safe communities. At least that's what it what it felt like, right? And and. The gender roles were clear, and men could feel like they were the man of the house, and the women knew their place. And, you know, all of these things felt so clear. But the problem with that is that you look on the flip side in that same poll, and there are very, very few people of color who actually answer yes in the affirmative that they long for the 1950s. Why? Because in the 1950s, that's Emmett Till. Like, you know, the 1950s, that's the, that's the, the bus boycott down in Montgomery. Um, the 1950s, Ugh. that's lynchings. That's, that is not, that's Brown versus the Board of Education at the very beginning of that, of that whole struggle. So that was a good thing, but that even took a struggle, right? Yes. So, so why, 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 why is it not possible for us to long for and reach for a world where we all, all of us get to have safety and enough. Yes. We can. We can. But we can't get there until we understand what broke the world and how. Yes. And that's why we do this. That's why I did the work that I did to research my family because it turns out my family was a part of it. I mean, experienced it, you know, and I mean, way back in the day with the very first race laws, which by the way, were also the very first gender based laws in America on this soil and the first citizenship laws. So in that one law in 1662, Virginia, you had the intersection of all three of those bodies of law and it Mm. had, and why were they established? They were established in that very law to, Create, protect, and entrench the unbreakable supremacy of white men.
0: Mm. And it's I I really valued in your book how you gave this picture. This I will love the striking image of Emmett's mother opening up that casket. That really hit deep. Like, yeah. it's so easy if I'm the one who's done the wrong to close the caskets on yes. my sins,
1: yes.
0: and it's so easy to want to move forward. And I want to demand mm-hmm. all the people I have wrong to close the casket, and for her courage to open that casket and mm-hmm. have us look like the way you, i I, di- I didn't know you you schooled me in so many ways and it's wow. like that that we need to follow her lead <laughs> we need to open the casket and look at the pain and it's like it's so interesting to me how connected that is into my own journey of like to me that helped me see like what is the actual church and what is the business of church can you look yeah. at the pain without shying numbing dismissing bypassing or sweeping it under the rug and going on to your business? Or can you look dead on at this pain? Because the best guess I have is that's what I'm called to do. And the irony is, is that's where all the new life is. When I die in that pain, all the new life is there. That's what's so ironic. Each time I picked it up, it was like, this is going to be hard. This is going to feel like a death, but it's a death of nothing that was bringing me new life. And yes, yes. That is that's it. It just makes it such a gift. It's such a gift, like any grief, right? In, in the other side of it, and I want to talk about another favorite part is um, your page one fourteen. The phrase "danced to survive." Oh yeah, dance to survive. Like, yeah. oh my goodness! Like I found you know i'm mm. i'm i can only connect through my own experience but i'm desperate to go further but i found a form of survival through movement through mm. finding a love of moving my body and it heals mm. me and it's mm-hmm. like then to see how it can heal it was to realize that our bodies that it can heal something so much bigger and broader and deeper it's like and for you to mm-hmm. follow that like what happened to the bodies of your great-great-grandmothers all the way up to see to see exactly what to happen to your mother. It's like so much has changed, but so much has not changed. Still in the basement. And I'm like, such brilliant storytelling, such brilliant stories. But I wanted to ask Mm. you, like this quote I highlighted on 114, what we didn't know in those hustling days is that our family danced to survive. The powers of the hustle and later the electric slide, just like our ancestors called forth the bomba, these strong aunties and uncles don dashikis in an attempt to give voice to some sense of self. Dance and dashikis both healed them and masked generations of pain. And what I was mm-hmm. curious about is I would love to know more about how that lives in you. Like, what is your relationship? Do you find healing in movement? Or do you find inspiration? And I'm just so curious to hear you talk more about that, because I just like, there. I wanted more. I wanted more.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that struck me, because I, I was writing that literally in the middle of the COVID lockdown. And um, and that that section is actually talking about or leads to that that chapter ends with a dance party that my family actually has online in the middle of covid in order to survive covid. Right. But I think that. In the midst of that COVID lockdown, one of the things that I did was I decided, okay, I'm going to use this opportunity um, for my own healing, and I'm going to get therapy in these different... And I decided I want somatic therapy. I want the kind of therapy that actually teaches my body, a, or first of all, reconnects me, because connection is what God calls very good, reconnects me to my body. I mean, you can imagine the disconnection from body that is literally trained or was trained from generation to generation of women um, of African descent who were forced to be raped in order to breed money for their masters, right? So, I mean, there is a, there is an actual tradition of leaving your body and just imagining that you were somewhere else, you're flying somewhere else. And instead, you know, your body is being raped, but your mind can't be raped because you you have left your body, right? So what happens with people who leave their bodies? They end up getting heart disease. They end up becoming overweight. They they end up um, dying early because we do have bodies that need to be cared for, and we have lots of books now. The body keeps the score. My grandmother's hands that have shown us that the body doesn't only keep the score in terms of okay, I have an illness, but the body has memory, mm. and the body remembers the trauma, and. Therefore, you need to go into the body in order to work out the trauma. The body has to be a part of the healing, the bar part. And so I think without knowing any kind of psychology, without ever meeting Freud or, or going to you know, sit on a, on a counselor's couch, our ancestors, my African ancestors, already had um, traditions of movement. Mm. And they leveraged those traditions of movement in order to survive the 246 years of, of racialized brutality, um, on plantations. And so they danced, you know, if they were gullah in the South, in South Carolina, um, they danced in the circle, in the roundhouse. They did a, they did a, um, a, a praise circle, a dance circle. If they were, um, on the island of Puerto Rico, as my that da- my father's side was, they did the bomba. They got into the bomba circle. And in the bomba, you followed the actual African beat, like uh, with the actual drum, the bomba drum. Um, And the, and that had a relationship between the, the, the drummer and the dancer. And, and as the dancer, the dancer could actually control the beat of the bum, the drum by where she, or he put his, her or his body. And, And that was the place where they had power. And they would dance out the trauma from the day. I mean, literally, this is, we now know physiologically, this actually happens. You can actually move out of your body the trauma of the day. That's what they did in the Bomba Circle. Mm. And I think that's what we did um doing the hustle in the 1970s with my 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 family that had come to America via Puerto Rico and got to Puerto Rico via the Caribbean um that they were the ones who taught me that dancing is healing mm. and so we danced our way literally through the covid lockdown online together every every um, Friday night, I think it was, or maybe it was Saturday. I know every Saturday night we would come together and dance as a family. And we have a DJ as one of our, as one of my cousins. And he would, you know, he, he'd do the tunes. all spin the tunes all night long for our healing.
0: This is so cool. We too, during COVID had a dance party. My oldest had us wait upstairs, and he and the other teens decorated the whole basement, even took lights and put colored construction paper over the lights, and we came down and had to check into this club, and we all danced, and it was so fun. It really is amazing to me what in an embodied healing experience dancing in a group can be. Ah oh it's so hopeful
2: it's so hopeful like yes it's, it's possible to heal we don't have to resort to violence oh, we don't have to be separated we just have to be do what it takes to be connected oh, and part of what that's going to take julie is it's going to take the truth telling and truth telling requires truth seeking and it requires truth listening mm. it requires then to tell the truth about what you've heard oh. and and then it's going to require reparation it's going to require repair you know we were talking about that earlier with the kids right if you have two children and and one receives two you know, let's say two brothers in a family and one receives a toy from now of course you don't you don't Never in a family do you ever give one toy to one kid. You always give it to both, right? But let's say they both get a toy and let's say one of them takes the other one's toy too and says, I want both, which is actually exactly what happened Uh in our case, right? I want both. And so the one brother decides he's going to take the toy from the other brother. Now he has two toys. Well, what would happen if they went to dinner that night and the mother or father doesn't say anything? Like, you know, like allows... Oh. the one brother, to keep both toys. Like, what would happen?
0: Mm-hmm. Like, what would
2: happen? That that would, from that moment forward, that family would be dysfunctional. Yes. It would not, it would cease to function well. Mm-hmm. Because no longer can the child trust the parent to, to protect. No longer, I mean, you've now established a hierarchy of who matters more between the two kids. Mm. This is exactly what happened mm-hmm. um, between People of European descent um in their in their um in the age of conquest and those they conquered, quote conquered, mm-hmm. as in um uh people of African descent and also indigenous people um throughout North and Central and South America. And so, you know, you have you have this moment where, okay, we're both sitting at the table now and and the bro- my my European brother has stolen our toys. And the question is will will anybody will any parent make them give it back mm-hmm. and it's i don't think god is the parent in this e- equation i think we live in a democracy and in a democracy we are all the parents we we are the ones who create the laws we are the ones who vote for the way that we will live together in the world and it's through our votes mm-hmm. that we decide um whether or not these toys will have to be given back yes. and we'll have equal relationships between between all here. And, and up to this point, people of African descent are the only ones in American history that have never, been re- never gotten reparations on a federal level for the things that were done to us, for the oppressions that we suffered. Only ones. <sighs> Why is that okay? It's not.
0: It's, it's not. not it's, it's not okay. We would never dream of I would never, I have six boys. And if that happened, I would never, ever dream of let's not talk about it. Let's not discuss it. It was in the past. Let's get over it. That would be so deeply cruel. And that would be over a toy. And this is over bodies and dignity and human, like robbing people of place. I mean, what, I love how you followed the place in the story. And now you're living, if I understand right, you're now living. One block from where my mom grew up, where my grandmother and grandfather lived,
2: and where two separate great grandparents lived all for over 70 years. And basically throughout the 20th century. They were here one block away in South Philadelphia. And I, you know, moving back here, I moved back here about almost two years ago now, about a year, a little over a year and a half. And I I I didn't understand the power of place before moving back here. I had felt drawn to it but i didn't understand why but oh my gosh there really is a relationship that we we have with the land that we're born on and the land that our people are from mm. and um and i have a relationship with philadelphia that goes back to when i lived here as a child and my grandmother and great grandmother and i found out recently um, because of another book that was um, that came out recently called African Founders, um, that that um, that historian has now done the work to trace um, one of the funders of the abolitionist movement, the one of the richest, actually the richest black man in Philadelphia in the 1700s and 1800s. He was rich and had never been enslaved. Um, and a Revolutionary War hero, James Fortin, that this historian has connected James Fortin to fortune game McGee. And I'm like, what? So uh, I didn't know. So, so, and it turns out James Fortin lived less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now. And he too was family like way back and was a part of the abolitionist movement. And his, his wife and daughters were part of the women's empowerment movement in the 1830s. You know what I mean? So so again, we have relationship with land. Mm. And and when I moved back here, there was a sense of um, I don't know exactly how to put it. I, I think of it physically. It's like fingers coming together like kismet. It's all coming together. There's a reconnection mm. to self that happened.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful and so powerful because we've gotten so disconnected from the yeah. ground, from the soil. Yes. Even how how things grow into and to to get connected to that is so beautiful and to see how it was so mysterious
2: yes and the land itself tells a story
0: the Mm. land
2: tells the story of what happened here Mm. so if you were to walk out my door you end up seeing if you're walking on, on my area below washington avenue in philadelphia south philly Um, you'll see very few trees and the trees that you find are going to be young trees because they were just recently planted in the last several years. There's a young tree that was planted in the last decade right outside of our house, right? So there's, and, and very few other ones. Well, why is that? Because back in the 1950s, this area was full of trees. It was beautiful. There was a canopy of trees on every block. Um, and then. There wasn't. The city just literally came in and took all the trees away in South Philadelphia. They just cut them all down. My mom had a relationship with the tree across the street from her. She would literally go out to that tree every night, have a little conversation with it. You know, she's a little six-year-old having a little conversation with the tree. Good night, tree, you know, that kind of thing. And then one day she woke up and the tree was gone. And it turned out that the tree was taken away because the the Italian neighbors had told the city they didn't want the trees there because they want to be able to lean out their na- out, the, out of their window and you know see who's coming down the block like they did in Italy, but they didn't ask the black neighbors who were in the same communities what you know what do you want? So that's a lack of agency. The lack of trees here tells a story of the lack of agency that people of African descent had in a city they had been in for more than a hundred years at that time, Mm. Um, actually for hundreds of years at that time. And the Italian immigrants had only been there for decades. And yet they got to say who, who, whether or not there were trees. Um, The same is true for an incinerator plant that lives less than a mile from my house it it has toxified the water in this area. Now it's gentrifying. This area is gentrifying. In other words, it's incredibly mixed. You know, it's a very common thing to, to see white people walking their dogs in the area. You never saw that back in my mom's day or even in the seventies when I was a little kid. Mm. But, you know, lots of, lots of, um, pet stores and grooming, pet grooming areas and, and coffee shops that just didn't exist before. But now that those people are here, now it's an issue now that incinerator is an issue and um and people are are wary of of the bad water but before they got here the city was not you know black people were thought to be expendable so it didn't really matter well now it matters because they've toxified land that white people
0: want and we have to an- we have to see that we have to answer to that i there's you just have such a rich history of so many things like I'm so glad I'm recording and can take notes because there's so much to dig into so much to dig into. Mm. I, I want to read this poem you provided in your book um, at the end of Sharon's chapter. Um, mm. The poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, you referenced um, he wrote about this mask. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile, and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise, in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but O great Christ, our cries to Thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but oh, the day is vile. Beneath our feet and long the mile, but let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. That was such a powerful poem to put
1: mm-hmm.
0: at the end as you've walked us through the stories of the women in your family. And it, it's like, I keep just asking this echo and this prayer of mine, like, will the real gospel please stand up? Because mm-hmm. I... I'm realizing there's so much that I believed that was not the real go- gospel. And I, I was mm. shocked in the best way to then read your chapter, like mm. to read where you said on page 150, I was born again in the same error that the religious right was born from the womb of post-civil rights, Jim Crow Christianity. And I would love if you have time in our closing, I would love for you to share with our listeners like that change, because I think that's so powerful that you'd, You'd had that, like, to see the, like, background history that was in your body, what happened to your ancestors, but then to see you fighting your mom about this issue was, like, mind-blowing, like, to see where you were. And then to see the facts and the lies. I also was exposed to the silent scream. I had no idea about the prefrontal cortex. And I, I too, have changed camps on that issue. I don't want it to be a camp, Mm -hmm. but if I have to pick one. Anyways, I would Mm -hmm. love for you to share more about whatever (laughs) popped, whatever you would want to share. Yeah. Well,
2: I think, (laughs) Julie, thank you so much. I I love, first of all, I'm really honored that you have gone, you really have taken in the story and I I'm honored by that. Thank you for not just reading, but for taking it in. And, and I do want to say that the hardest chapter for me to write was the one, on me, <laughs> it would you would think that'd be the easiest one because you know I have all the all the documentation and you know it's all right there, um, but no, it was the hardest one because you know you know your whole life story. So what's going to be the through line is the question, and where are you going to start the story? And and one of the things that that was clear to me is you know, for me, the the intersection with the breaking of racial, um, the breaking of humanity that racial hierarchy did. It happened. My clearest intersection with it was, um, in, in my, uh, foray into white evangelicalism. And when I, when I went down, uh, the aisle and gave my life to Jesus at a Sunday evening camp church meeting in Irma, Cape May, New Jersey, um, and I was the only black person within a five mile radius of that space, uh, maybe except for my own family that lived around the corner, um, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was joining into at the time. I had no idea that I was joining into this massive history. I had watched Roots, so I knew enough about I knew enough about enough that I knew that black folks struggled, but I hadn't made the connection at all to my own family's part of that struggle. And so I went down and I didn't know anything about the connection of the current political environment and um and and any connection to civil rights or or slavery, anything like that. I didn't know that the very people who created the religious right were the exact same people who were fighting for um, segregation in the 60s. I mean, That's I didn't know blowing. that
0: That's, that blew my mind too. I don't care how many times I hear that; it absolutely blows my mind. <laughs> it just yes, it blew my mind too. Like
2: I didn't know that James that um, that Falwell um, had had spent the seventies trying to protect white pure space at Bob Jones University. <sighs> I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that. Um, that that um, Liberty University, right? Like it it started as a race school, like it started as a segregation academy, you know, actually way back. And and then it actually spawned on and inspired um, schools across the South to, to create these pure white spaces. Why? In response to Brown versus the Board of Education mm-hmm. and the Civil Rights Act, because they would rather have these segregated race academies, then, to allow their 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 pure white children to sit next to and learn with people of African descent, whose ancestors descended from warriors and queens and kings and engineers and librarians and storytellers and theater people and and I mean, really, literally, great civilizations. I mean just going back, my ancestor Sambo game, right? So Sambo, my very first um, African ancestor on this land that we've been able to trace back to was, was brought here in 1686. And he, is from, uh, he, well, he came here from the Gambia River, which is in Senegal. And that's why I think they named him Gam, because that's what they did. That was their thing, and that eventually became Game. So Game was his last his last name, his surname. But Sambo means second son, and Sambo came from a region um, where second son would have been. I mean, a, a lot of people were named second son, and if you were in second son, that was like one of your names. And so, and he came from a region that was very close to the very first library on Earth. I mean, a region that had one of the great five libraries and universities in the world in Mali. Like -hmm. these were really learned people. The first cathedral in the world was in Africa. Do you understand that? The first cathedral ever was on the continent of Africa. Congo had cathedrals and Christianity before Enslavement before the transatlantic slave trade. The, na- the The kingdom of Congo was a Christian nation before the transatlantic slave trade. So all of the I didn't know that, right? So what it. What happens is I get I I walk down the aisle at this Sunday evening camp church meeting in an all white context, and I think that okay, they are the keepers of Jesus. So you know, I think, well, Jesus must look like them and Jesus, you know, whatever they say is what I need to follow. And I was told immediately, okay, now you need to become a Republican <laughs> because, because now you're a Christian, you have to become a Republican. And I didn't know about James Cone, who was also, I didn't know that I didn't know about MLK actually at that point, hardly at all. Um, And, and what I did know, you know, what I was told by my new um, white teachers is that he was a communist, not that he was a preacher and a pastor, let alone a Christian. Right? So, right. So this is when you learn the world through white eyes, and I don't mean white as in European descent. I mean eyes that shape hierarchy, human hierarchy, and benefit from it. Then you learn about yourself and about others through a lens that says anything European is right and good and noble and true and anything not is suspect at best Mm -hmm. and at worst is animalistic, is non-thinking, is wrong, is bad, is evil. So, you know, so I walked down the aisle and I'm told immediately I have to be Republican. And I didn't realize (laughs) that that was all a part of of a scheme, an actual scheme mm. that developed around 1983, the very year that I that I became a Christian, just months before um, they had lost their Supreme Court bid to protect pure white space at Bob Jones University. Ugh. And it was within a month of that time that the moral majority was born. And Paul Weirich um, a Politico and the conservative movement at the time said, "You know what? We have something here. We have actually we have we have um, amassed a, um, a critical mass to be able to fight back, but we can't do it according to race anymore because that's not gauche." But we still need to overturn this, um, the, the Supreme Court in order to get that pure white space, but we can't do it through the lens of race. So let's overturn the Supreme Court and get um, a majority conservative Supreme Court, but let's do it through another lens that would be more, more acceptable nowadays. What, what can we do? Well, they looked around and right around the same time, the ERA, uh, was 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 being pushed through. It actually had already passed Congress and now it was being ratified in different, different states. And so they pushed back against the ERA and at the exact same time, they also identified a- um, abortion as like the main issue that was starting to get traction among white evangelicals as an issue, even though white evangelicals just five years before that had, had declared. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention had just five, six, seven years before that had put out three successive statements saying it was a good ruling. A good ruling. And so because now – Abortions are being counted, and that's starting to get like people to clutch, the clutch their curl their their, their pearls, pearls. <laughs> because before before Roe v Wade they weren't counting abortions, so it was all undercover, and women were dying, but those weren't being counted either because it was all illegal. So now that it's mm. legal, it's being counted, and people are getting nervous about the numbers. So they said, "This is our moment. We can seize abortion as the issue, and let's use abortion to overturn the calculus of the Supreme Court." And when we do that, then we'll be able to attack um, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal citizenship of all of all people, all citizens. And when you attack the 14th Amendment, that's when you also attack the Civil Rights Movement. You attack the Civil Rights Act. When you attack the Civil Rights Act, you attack Brown versus the Board of Education. So it ultimately all goes back to the same place. It is about protecting, securing, protecting, and entrenching white male power. And they won. They basically, you know, declared check. I don't know if it's checkmate yet, but it's pretty close. Check. You know, when they got, when, when they, when they got, um, Amy Comey Barrett, that was almost a checkmate. I'm not sure if it's really checkmate yet. I'm praying that it's not, um, You know what, what there's a, there's a really great um, sermon that is preached in the black community about a chess game and how, you know, you think you get to the end of this chess game and, and, you know, your opponent says checkmate and you look on the board and you realize the king has another move Mm. and they can preach that the king has another move. The king has another move. And I think that we are in that moment where it looks like checkmate, but the king has another move. Oh,
0: that is so good. And, it's, and you, you have such a hopeful book and a truthful book, and I am so grateful to talk to you. It's, it's such a gift. What brings you hope that the king has another move like what specific thing in the last mm. month has brought you hope that the king has another move
2: well there's specifically there are there are multiple things that can be done i mean in terms of asking the question of how do we want to live together in the world that's that's what politics is supposed to be it's supposed mm. to be us having conversations about how do we want to live together in the world and then and then passing laws that actually enforce that, that idea of how we want to live together in the world. Do we want to live together in the world where one party actually dominates? um, And I mean, has a, has a super dominant uh, stance on not only the making of law, but the interpretation of that law. And it's not even one party, I would be okay if it was one party, but it's, it's actually an, At this moment, an undemocratic party, it's a party that doesn't believe in democracy. It's a party that is grabbing at power at all costs. And so if if our way that we choose to live in the world is the way of grabbing power at all costs, Mm. even at the expense of democracy, then as a nation, we're actually choosing to kill democracy, to kill our nation, to kill this great experiment that has so much more potential. So I have hope, Julie, because I know the struggle of my ancestors. I have hope because I know that fortune and Leah and Henry could never have imagined a day when enslavement wouldn't have been the norm or indenture wouldn't have been the norm. They couldn't have imagined that. Um, they, and yet Leah saw the day come. Leah saw the day. She lived through the mm-hmm. change. She saw the end of slavery. Uh, she saw it. She I, saw the passage of the 13th and 14th and 15th amendment. She lived in that time. And so I know that on the very first page of the Bible, when God says, let there be light, that is actually God limiting the darkness, uh, limiting the place, um, the domain of the unknown, the domain of the place where where evil things are done, um, mm. the place of um, of the things that are most fearful, and and the place of oppression, that God limits the darkness on the first page of the Bible. That's just what our God does, and we've we've oh. seen God do that. We've seen God limit the darkness, even of the Holocaust. We've Mm. seen God limit the darkness in the struggles of the civil rights movement. And, you know, Bloody Sunday didn't just happen and then nothing happened after it. The Civil Rights Act was passed. The Voting Rights Act was passed Mm. because of Bloody Sunday.
0: That is so beautiful.
2: You know, so I have hope because oftentimes the darkest moment, the darkest moment, is actually the moment just before dawn. That and I think we're we're so almost hopeful. there. Yes,
0: yes. So thank you so much. This has been, it is so beautiful to hear your passion and your heart and your story and to hear, we started off this conversation of like you went on this three decades of research of who am I and where do I come from? And we end and you're telling me a place you find hope because you have traced, you have poured love into your research and your pursuit of truth. And that has brought you hope. That, that's going to blow my mind. <laughs> like I need a long walk to process that you've, you've received hope from, from digging deeply into all that. And it touches me that you said, you know, it's easier to write all those chapters on your ancestors, but then it was hard to write your own. I felt comforted because I'm like, it is harder for me to mind the universe that is inside of me <laughs> than any other universe. So thank you. Thank you for your time.
2: You're very, very welcome. And I'll just add that I receive hope because I see that God changes things and God changes things through us. Mm. We have the ability to exercise agency and to build another way of being together in the world. We have choice. We have choice. That gives me hope.
0: Oh, A million thank yous and blessings and grace and peace and all the good things. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julie. Well, I know I'm adding this book to the required reading for my high schoolers that are studying American history this year. What a gift to have her research and her love poured into this book and for them to be able to follow one family, 10 generations how race broke their family. And it's a gift for us. You know, in the end, she talks about forgiveness and the beloved community. She talks about the African term Ubuntu. And what Ubuntu means is I am because we are. It speaks to the very essence of being human. It paints a picture of the collective interdependence of all of humanity. Ubuntu imagines oppressed an oppressor, both present in the end, connected and interdependent.
1: I can't start to compare your love to the size of your heart. If people saw the road you've been down, they would know. And you'd never feel alone. No, you wouldn't! Like an antidote to the world chased by the big- You taste the tears You're lost in sorrow You see your yesterdays But I see tomorrow You see the darkness But I see the spark They would know And you'd never feel alone No, you wouldn't feel wasted Like an antidote To the world Chased by the physics.